there's plenty of customers out there who come to me and just say, hey, we've seen what you've done. We were in our neighbor's house. We saw on Instagram, we walked a job, we had dinner at a friend's house and we saw what you did and we want you to do the job and they trust us enough that they'll hire us. We're going to provide them budgeting and we're going to be realistic and we're going to tell them that we're probably going to be more expensive. But the people who go through all that and still want to hire us will wait for us. They'll pay our premium and they'll appreciate what we do. So that makes the most amount of sense to me. Somebody getting upset that I don't want to competitively bid a job. I can't worry about that. I don't need the volume of work to keep everyone happy. Welcome to episode 94 of the AFT Construction Podcast, and I'm your host, Brad Levitt. And in this episode, we speak with Tyler Grace of TRG Home Concepts. And this is one I've been excited for for a while. Tyler is a colleague of mine. He also is a co-host of the Modern Craftsman Podcast and has been very active in the IG community and social media, uh, just bettering our industry and, and bringing knowledge that each of us are looking to gain to help better our business. And Tyler has a very unique process, right? He is self-performing nearly all of his work. He's a small company. He's wearing many hats as a business owner, you know, from design and billing and accounting to the actual construction itself. And that relationship with the client, the hands-on, the expertise, and how he manages all these different things, his process, and really looking at scale, right? A lot of us are, you know, success is defined by so many different things and success is different for each of us. And he defines what is successful for him and his brand. There's a lot of good content here. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome today to Construction Podcast. And today we have Tyler Grace with us, who is owner of TRG Home Concepts. And most of you know him as one of the hosts on The Modern Craftsman. So welcome, Tyler. You call me the president. <laughs> I, I do like the president. That, that has a better ring to it than just owner. It sounds official, right? <laughs> I'm going to start calling you the president of the modern craftsman. That way Nick and John That's know fine. <laughs> you just have to ask Nick. He might get offended. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So, I mean, Tyler, with you, it, I, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time because your business model is so much different than mine or Nick's, right? And even Johnny, like you just have a different operation, which has always fascinated me because- the work you put out, the quality is outstanding, and you're you're doing most of it yourself. I mean, you're managing the business development, you're managing client, and you're self-performing. You know, so it's super unique. So, what when you're on a project, what scopes of work do you typically self-perform? Well, thank you. First off, um, I try and self-perform as much as I can. Um, there's a lot. I mean. I feel like I kind of got into the business model just because it worked for me and didn't really understand um, how I could maximize my profits doing it. And it was, it was always, it was just easier. It was simpler. I didn't have scheduling issues, but then I also wanted to execute at a high level. Um, and I was finding with subs and everything else to, to manage subs as a job in and of itself. So a lot of times for me, the scale that I'm doing business, it's easier to self-perform as many trades as I can legally do. Um, <clears throat> so on on a, a typical job for us, we're self-performing everything from demolition, rough framing, layout, um, insulation if it's a small job, drywall, finishing, painting, carpentry, tile, basically everything that we're legally allowed to do. We don't do finish in place hardwood floors. Um, electrical, plumbing, HVAC, roofing, siding, exterior work. We typically sub out 
but I try and self-perform most interior uh, trades. It's interesting. So why, you know, why not the hardwood flooring? If you're already doing the tile and you're doing a lot of the finished carpentry, is there a reason that you said, hey, I don't want to touch the finished hardwood floor? Yeah, so um, specialty tools. I think that there's a big learning curve. I don't, it's very, it's hard work. Um, and I think it's one of those, it's one of those things, it's almost like paint finishing that I think that you could dive pretty deeply into it. And I don't want to do that. Like <laughs> I considered it because of a few issues with flooring subs and it was just to say, I'll just do it myself. And then when I really started looking into it, I was like, I don't want to open this can of worms. I gotta, I gotta, I have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> well, as you mentioned paint, I mean, I've seen you do like a high gloss finish. I mean, you did that, that entertainment center and you know, anyone that's worked on a level five or a high gloss, I mean, it is extremely difficult, you know, to execute that at a high level. And so, as you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of coordination and technique and practice, if you will, to, to be able to paint at that level. Yeah. So uh, I started finishing cabinets because I had a lot of cabinets get ruined, um, which was probably partially my fault, you know, hiring painters, not screening them well enough, but it got to the point where do I look to bring cabinets that I've made or built-ins to a cabinet shop for somebody to finish them and then bring them back, install them, touch up in the field, which wasn't ideal. Um, so I started finishing cabinets myself and then, you know, I... I I have high standards for myself, for my subs. And I also just, I don't enjoy doing things that I don't understand. So anything that I do, I'm 110% into. It's either I don't do it or it's gas on or gas off. Yeah. Um, so I, I just learned and I learned one job at a time and I learned by screwing a lot of stuff up. And I've gotten, I've gotten decent. Like I know, I know my capacity and I know my limits and where I should draw the line, but it, it just comes down to, for me, it's easier to manage that aspect of things than it is to have a sub there and have to check in on them and then have to have them clean things up, touch things up, make sure it's good with the homeowner. And then if I don't have three jobs going on at once, where do I go while I have a painter there? I'm like, just go to the beach, put my feet up. Um, so with the scale that I do things, it makes sense for me to plant myself there and not leave and not get subs in. And all the money goes in my pocket at that point. But that also limits the size of job I can do. Right. And, and I understand that. Like, I, 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 I like that approach in the sense that you have a lot more control. You know, it's a better hands-on. It's a better experience. You know, as you mentioned, instead of subbing out everything you have, we'll just call it profit lines or opportunity in each of these scopes of work. But where I find this incredibly complex is I look at it for us as a supervision company and where we have superintendents, right? When they're in the field and they have their tools on and they're doing punch, like they're not able to be on their computer. They're not able to, you know, process paperwork or emails, whatever it may be. And so I'm fascinated for you, Tyler, when you're working on a project, how do you find time? Cause when you have your tool bags on, you can't just have your phone on. So how are you managing just running the business? Because you're trying to run the business and you're self-performing. Yeah, so I, I think that all of the reason why I kind of I'm in this little niche, um, for lack of a better term, is it's a lot of natural progression and kind of I've wound up funneling myself into this over the years. Um, I was just telling a, a larger painting contractor yesterday how I'll have 
I'll anticipate getting the job and I'm going to get people set up and then I'm going to hop on my computer for a couple hours. And as soon as I get to the job and the tools are in my hand, I just, I don't get to the computer. Um, so for a long time I did it after work, um, which it got to the point with kids and my wife working that it just, it didn't, I couldn't do that anymore. So I've, I've found a way to scale back business enough that I do a handful of jobs a year. I have managed to keep my overhead extremely low um, while still, you know, I invest in nice tools. I invest in new vehicles, things to make my life easier to look professional. Um, But it also lowers my overhead. I have less mistakes. I'm not doing things two and three times. The communication is with me and the customer. I'm not depending on somebody else. It's with me and the subcontractors. So I've I've been able to scale back enough that if I take a day off the job or if I need to get to the job late, um, it's pretty easy to manage that. And then while I'm on the job, it's just all work. I'm dealing with setting things up for two weeks ahead, three weeks ahead, kind of while I'm working. While you know, I usually meet with my customers in the morning and then at the end of the day to go over where things are and make selections. And we're doing a lot of pre-planning too. Um, so usually once we start the job, it's it, the communication is more so just ensuring that the customers are on the same page as me or if we run into an issue. But a lot of times at that point, there's enough trust there that I can just kind of get let loose. Um, and it's pretty easy. I'm, I'm, I'm painting by numbers at that point. Um, so the planning I'm planning for jobs six months ahead, nine months ahead, kind of, uh, behind the curtains. And then once we, we start those jobs, everything's pretty much selected and we have a pretty good design, comprehensive design in place that I don't need. I don't need to do too much for those jobs when they're actually happening. It's interesting. So if I understand correctly, it's not so much where you're saying, Hey, Monday through Thursday, I'm in the field Friday. I'm in the office. It's more, it's a case-by-case, day-by-day, depending on the project, and you've built yourself not only a reputation, but at least with your skill set, with who you know in these projects, you could take on the projects that make sense that you can handle and control that duration and still have the time needed for the client or for design or, or emails or whatever it may be for the back-end stuff. Yeah, it's it's um, like I said, it's kind of progressed that way very organically. Um it wasn't always that way and I didn't always have the customer base or the confidence to do that or even just the confidence to have that relationship with the customer, right? Where now I really try to work only for customers who want us to do the work. So they're coming to us saying, like, I have to offer them something more than a dollar sign. Whatever I'm bringing to the table has to be more valuable than whoever's going to come at a lower price than me. So they're hiring me, understanding what I do, um, the quality, the process, the design. So I don't have a lot of customers who are very needy or want to make every decision with us. Um, so I don't, I don't have like on a larger job like you, right? You don't have a lot of selections made or you need the designer to pick a fixture. Then you need your super to understand where that is. He then needs to get, or she needs to get those specs to your electrician or your plumber for me, that's that's all on me. It's face-to-face with the customers every day. I don't have to worry about communicating all of that stuff. A lot of it's chosen, selected, budgeted, 
laid out for beforehand so it's 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 front loaded in design it's front loaded at the rough ins and then after that i don't have a lot of time with the customer on a daily basis going through things and making selections and layouts so once we're through rough inspections if i need to devote time during the day or after work for a little bit for the next job or the next two jobs i have the ability to do that because I'm kind of just going through the motions on the job at that point. Everything's already accounted for. All the brain work's done. The subs are out of there. So it's just me and whoever's working for me kind of, like I said, painting by numbers at that point. All the thoughts done. It's interesting because the, the advantage there, Tyler, as you mentioned, I mean, because the communication is all through you, you're not playing this telephone game where you're interpreting something, you're handing it off all these different channels, and it gets lost in translation, Right. And so you know the scope, you know the project, and so there's less mistakes is really what it comes down to. But from the selection side, are you working with the client direct on design? I mean, how are you making those selections? And even more, like when you're, if I'm a client reaching out to you, Tyler, and I want a price for you to remodel my house, are you setting allowance lines for certain things? I mean, how does that design, when, and how does it take place? So it's it's case by case but a lot of times the way it works for me is i have a customer come to me and they want you have to remember also the scopes of my jobs are much smaller so right. it's it's very manageable you know i have a spreadsheet with everything that can go into every one of these jobs and <clears throat> it's pretty easy to um spend the time up front designing and if it's a bathroom you know we can choose that we want sconces we can choose an approximate size. If a customer can't make a selection before it's in the space, say, let's pick two or three options that you want. And then we can lay that out block in that wall set up. So the electrician leaves us slack so that whatever that final decision is, we can kind of audible. And I'm, I'm the keeper of all that information. So I don't have to worry about for, I mean, I do have to worry about forgetting something or not, planning or accounting for it, but I've done it enough at this point that I kind of have a process in place that allows us the liberty to move ahead with design if those decisions aren't made. Um, most of the time, uh, a lot of the selections, the decisions, the trim packages are all accounted for beforehand. And we usually have, I mean, if it's an allowance, it's like countertop allowance because we don't know exactly how many square feet um, or their selection, but a lot of times with fixtures and all that stuff, I need that prior to rough in. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's no reason why we can't have that selected prior to the job starting. Cause if it's prior to rough in, it's the same thing. The customer, we may see that space framed in, but the customer doesn't see that finished space. So we should be able to either give them renderings, mock-ups, showing those selections so those decisions can all be made beforehand and I can account for them. So if we need to hand that off to a designer, I also have a lot of my vendors. Um, I can set the customers up to go walk through the showroom with the vendors and make selections. My vendors typically know style at that point. I can send them floor plans. I can send them inspiration budgeted allowances for them and also my wife ends up helping a lot on finish selection because um, she enjoys that i don't enjoy that end of it <laughs> so <clears throat> for me it's easy I, if, if it's a customer where it's like hey we need to spend a weekend and go to the tile store um go to the countertop supplier 
go pick cap, you know, anything like that. We can, we can allocate a couple days towards that, um, that it's not that hard to do for me and on the scale and the scope of my jobs. And do you build, you know, I call it elbow space, right? As you build an elbow room when you look at costing and profitability. So when your wife's involved in design, is that under the TRG? Are you billing for her? Is that just a service you're giving the client? Um, usually I have a design fee based up front, budgeted. So a lot of times people will hire us and it's it's almost like a pre-construction, right? Mm-hmm or somebody's going to hire us and we're going to try and nail down design, I'll allocate a certain amount of hours. And the reason I do that is because if we get hung up, if the customer's a pain in the butt, if they can't make decisions, I'm going to say, hey, we're we're going to budget 12 hours of design towards this and site meetings, and we'll track that. And if they go over it two hours, no big deal. If it's one of those customers where we're at two dozen hours... Yeah. Like at some point I need them to kind of shit or get off the pot. And if they're paying for it, a lot of times they'll make decisions much quicker. So I tend to get compensated for our design time. If there's a designer involved, it's specifically, Hey, this is their hourly rate. This is how many we're budgeting. If it goes over, it'll be this per hour. Um, again, it's case by case. My return, a lot of my customers are return customers now. So it's like, Hey, give me a deposit for the job. We'll sort all this out as we go and the trust is there that I don't need to, I'll still provide them with the spreadsheet of costs, but they're not so concerned like, Hey, what if we do this? What if we do that? They understand that it's going to be fair and they're going to get their money's worth. Yeah. Which is really nice. I mean, the repeat clients, especially for your business, Tyler, I mean, I can see where that, that does create it so much easier on phase two, three, four, as you work down the line. But my curiosity too, is when you know, the question often asked in our industry is, okay, so if I'm calling you, Tyler, to come out and do my remodel and, you know, you're forecasting your schedule, you're forecasting what you have on your plate, but at some point you can't just drive around all day and do bids. You can't just drive around and meet. So that vetting, are you charging the client? Like if they were a cold call to come visit them, are you charging them for that consultation fee? Are you vetting them over the phone? I mean, how do you work through that process to know, yes, this may be a project for me, so I'm willing to put in you know, that time necessary to win the project? A judgment call. Um, so I have, usually I'll send people, if it's a call, I'll send them to my website and they'll fill out a form. It'll ask a few questions. Realistically, I try and get people's addresses um, and I'll look up the value of their home because I understand from my price point that somebody's not going to put a $100,000 kitchen into a house that's worth $300,000. Like, And I really wouldn't want somebody to do that because mm-hmm. it's setting me up for them to be disappointed because they're never going to get that out. So a lot of times I'll, I'll look at, I'll look up the person. Who's a person? What do they do for a living? Where do they live? And I'll see if it makes sense. And then I check schedule wise because I'm always booked up. I'm easily booked up a year in advance at any given time. And that's been the case for the past five, six years. Um, between return and that's that's without a return customer coming to me saying, Hey, let's do this, where I have to kind of squeeze them in. So the vetting is a lot of a judge it's it's a judgment call. It's getting on the phone with them, it's seeing if they have a design already, because if they don't, um, it's tough. I also, within the past year and a half, I've really started telling customers pretty straightforward that we're not bidding projects. Um, we right. Can, so if they're asking you saying, Hey Tyler, yeah. I want to get three bids or I'm telling these three companies. I mean, it's like, no, either I, you know, I'm Tyler or it's Correct. negotiated, right? Yeah. Because I've just found over the years, 
even if we're going to be competitive with pricing, I just selfishly find myself enjoying the jobs where the people come to me and say, we want you to do the work because they enjoy that process much more. They enjoy investing in us, investing in their home and then seeing the fruits of all of our labor kind of at the end of the job it's they're coming to us and i want to work for them they're they're trusting us and for me that's so much more enjoyable than somebody who's saying we kind of like your work but we're not sure if we like it as much as this person or this person's price where there's a handful of people on the table so if i have enough people who can come to me in any given year that just want me to do the job. And it's not it's not regardless of price, but when price, they understand they're going to pay a premium and they trust us enough, I would want to work for those people all day long. And I've, I've kind of established this small enough niche and this low enough volume of work that I can make a living that I don't need to competitively bid jobs. Um, so it, it's not always a hard no, but usually... It just doesn't make that much sense for me because I don't I don't have the time to do that either. See, and I think that's between you and I, that's one of the biggest things that plagues our industry, in my opinion, is that there's this mentality, right, that the client has to go out and they have to hard bid and get all these bids. But the reality is, as you and I know, there's so much left to interpretation, even if you have specs and plans, interpretation, quality. Um, you, you know, if, if some contractors want to cut corners or nickel and dime them later, I mean, there's... And, and so even if they get multiple bids, it still doesn't get the client a true understanding of what that is. I mean, I struggle with that. I, I could have three concrete guys bid a job and they're all going to ex- exclude and include different things. And, you know, I have to be a professional, go through and really dissect that and make sure I understand that. So, I, but the biggest thing I think most of us struggle with, how do you handle that conversation? Because if I'm calling saying, hey, Tyler, I'm going to have you bid this. I'm having two other bids. I mean, how do you let off the client or how do you handle that communication to say, you know, this isn't for me. I don't hard bid without offending them, or is it even an issue of concern? I think um, early on it was because I you don't want to potentially tell somebody no in the back of your head. You say, well, what if this job turns into something else, or their friend, or they go and tell, and you just have to believe that things are going to work out. Um, that. I also, I don't try and force anything in business. I feel that my business is going to take the path that's best for my business, for myself, for my family. And I could manipulate things and I could really force things and tweak things. But if I just let it happen the way that it's supposed to, um, I can't, if it doesn't work out, I can't be bitter about it because I didn't force it. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, decision that I made where I'm like, I'm going to expand and have two crews and then I lose a bunch of money it just doesn't happen that way. So I've I've come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to be able to please everyone. I'm not going to be able to get to everyone. And if somebody gets upset that I don't competitively bid a project <clears throat> and they don't turn around and say, hey, you know what? We're okay with that. Let's move ahead. Then I don't think that they really want me to do the work. They want me to give them a price. Right. And if I fit whatever... Whatever their agenda, whatever their program is, if I fit into that program at that point, I have a shot at the job. But that I don't I don't want to position myself to do that because there are plenty of customers out there, and it takes work on my end, but there's plenty of customers out there who come to me and just say, Hey, 
we've seen what you've done. We were in our neighbor's house. We saw on Instagram, we walked a job, we had dinner at a friend's house and we saw what you did and we want you to do the job and they trust us enough that they'll hire us without, we're going to provide them budgeting and we're going to be realistic and we're going to tell them that we're probably going to be more expensive. But the people who go through all that and still want to hire us will wait for us. They'll pay our premium and they'll appreciate what we do. So that makes the most amount of sense to me getting, you know, somebody getting upset that I don't want to competitively bid a job is just nothing. I can't worry about that. I don't need the volume of work to keep everyone happy. Yeah, I, I don't think I've heard it said that well, Tyler. I mean, you said that spot on that the reality is if the client is looking for just a hard bid, you know, you may not even be, I don't want to say qualified, but, but they're not the right person for the job because they're looking for this small parameter, whatever it may be, and you're not going to try to guess to be in there because there's value you bring. And the clients understand that they're going to bring on Tyler, right? And it's interesting because I've had other GCs, you know, their process is, well, if I'm in a hard bid something, it's 10 grand, right? For a hard bid or whatever that number is. But, you know, this all comes down to value. And I've seen some other successful contractors I've networked with. And, and I'm going to speak about to on my scale, which is a little bit different, you know, from what you and I do being that I don't self-perform. But, you know, when a client comes in and they say, hey, Brad, you know, I want you to hard bid this house. Well, if I show them the value of saying, okay, this is how I bid a project. I'm not just getting the cheapest price or three bids, like we're going to go through, we're going to analyze these plans. We're going to go through Bluebeam. We're going to write the scope. You know, we're going to diagnose this entire set. And so this isn't so much as just a quick, t you know, turnkey number. You know, this is weeks and weeks of data entry and scope definition and processes and estimation that we're doing internally. So this is a cost, right? I'm going to spend whatever, 100 hours. It's going to cost me 10 grand. Well, when you present it that way, the client understands, okay, this isn't just some, you know, these, they're serious about it. And so there is a value to that. And as you direct clients to that value, then they understand that more. Yeah. And I've, again, this is, this is kind of all been a realization the further that I've grown in my self growth, my business growth, my, my skill set, um, corresponding with customers, everything else. But I've just realized that if you put a number on something up front, like you said, it's never going to be apples to apples, no matter what. If you said, build me a cabinet and you go to three different people, that cabinet's going to be completely different. Even if there's a plan in place, people's construction methods are going to be different. It may take somebody three times longer than somebody else. If you haven't seen that product firsthand, experienced that process firsthand, it's not fair to to make a judgment or make a selection based on a price if you don't know what goes into it. So for me, it's it's an even price aside, I want to make sure that my customers understand who we are, what we do. A lot of times I say, let me get you into one of my customers' houses that we worked on to see what our finished product looks like two years after it's been there and to speak with the customer firsthand about their experience. And it can be a handful of customers. I don't have to send you to my best customers. You can, there's customers who say, Hey, it's a long wait. Um, is that worth it to you? Because some people doesn't matter how good of a price we are. If you want it now, I can't do anything about it. Cause I don't have manpower to throw at the job. Um, so price point to me, it's really tough because our industry is extremely price driven. It comes down to materials. It comes down to subs, contractors, everything's about price and it's not necessarily the lowest price it could be the middle price or you, you could choose somebody because they're the most expensive 
and their work may not reflect that. So for me, you you really have to do your due diligence. You have to do your homework. You have to go look at jobs. You're spending how much money on a house? If you were to go buy a car, how many cars would you go sit in? You'd do your homework. You'd go see it firsthand, drive it, feel it. If you're going to go to a doctor, you're going to be like, and I know it's different. We're not we're not fixing people, but at the same time, like if you were going to a doctor, you had a health issue, would your first concern be like, hmm, this guy's half the price of the other guy? It, it just doesn't make that much sense to me. And I can't control the whole industry. I would love to make things change and have this this massive impact on this entire industry. That's not within my capacity. What's within my capacity is to control the impact I have on my life and my business and my customers. And I never want to sell a job based on price. I never do. I want to sell a job based on what we do, our execution, our process, our design, our cleanliness, our control. And when I do that, the if the budget fits, then it's a good customer. But I don't want to sell a job based on a price ever. I love that. And you know, I will say that there is a big impact you're making, Tyler. I mean, all the information you're putting out there, and it's funny, that analogy, I've heard you give that before as far as being a doctor trying to diagnose an entire project, right? And that's really what we're trying to deal with in construction when you're diagnosing a, a project. And it's interesting, when you're speaking about price, I had Matt Reisinger on, who you know, and you know, Matt gave an example early in his career. He was bidding, and it was really one of the last times he had hard bid a project because he's similar to you and I where it's negotiated. And he said he... He was with the client and they had three bids. They had a low, medium, high, and he was medium. And the only reason the client selected him, which he found out after the fact, was because the only difference between him and the high guy was their cabinet number. And the the upper guy had selected a cabinet company in town that he knew that was more of a furniture-based cabinet company, you no know, really custom cabinetry. And he picked a company that had built their own boxes, but they bought doors from like Caldor, yeah. right? So you're talking one scope of item, just that's it. They end up hiring Matt. And then later on in the project, they ended up going up and using that furniture cabinet company. So he said, you know, this, it, it just, there's no rhyme or reason because no. they picked me for this reason. And come to find out, we use that same cabinet company in the, in the long run. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't, when I first started out, it's funny because I think so much of it is just, um, it's on the consumer end of things. And I think that most contractors are trying to appease to what the consumer wants, right? And they think, that the consumer wants the best price um, and they want they want the most for that dollar. And that's just what's been burned into our brains. When I first started, you know, I, I thought that I had to come in. I had to have the lowest price to get the job. Um, and that's how I kind of built my business. And it was, I knew where numbers were. I knew when I wouldn't get a job. And my biggest concern starting in this industry was ensure, ensuring that my price was good and that I wasn't going to be expensive. Um, and I just realized that that's not sustainable for us. And if you want to be able to sustain a career in this industry, that you have to find an alternate means of making a living. And for me, that's not it. I don't want to do volume. I don't want to manage people. That's not my expertise. That doesn't make me happy. I want to manage my customers. I want to manage design. I want to manage the work. And I want to find a way to to maximize the amount of money that I can make um, while executing at the level that I do. <clears throat> and I've just found that, at, that the number there is going to limit what I can do so much. 
And I think that, again, there's customers who aren't so concerned about that. It's everyone cares about money and how much things cost. And I'm not saying I'm going to be 200% higher than the other guy, but I know that it's going to take us more time to do a job. And the more time you spend, you should be compensated for that. Um, so a lot of times that's something else I do is I show customers schedule, you know, how long this is going to take because to, to execute at a higher level, to clean up every day, um, to take time and lay things out, it, it does take more time. And if, if people are willing to pay for that, if you give them that opportunity, but I think so many people in our industry, they don't want to give people the opportunity to do it right. They think that they just want the cheapest price. Well, it's interesting you brought that up. I mean, you talked about the, what, what we anticipate the consumer wanting, and that's really Steve Jobs, right? With Apple, he said, I'm not, you know, I'm going to dictate to the customer what they want, not vice versa. And in, se- in essence, that's what you're doing because as we've found out, you know, any successful company is ones that, hey, it's not just the cheapest price, it's what's the other value compensation, right? It's communication, it's quality, it's, you know, processes, all these things that the customer does want. Someone who's reliable, hey, I had Tyler, you know, he's on my house. He's hands-on, right? I call him. He's available. This is who I'm dealing with direct. And so there's this assurance. And, you know, this, this is built over time, right? There's a confidence that you have, Tyler, that's made you successful, that, made, that has made your business successful. So is that confidence? Is that just from trial and error? Is that from mistakes? Is that networking? I mean, how have you accelerated that growth and knowledge and confidence to where you are at today? Um, I would say one of the biggest factors there. So I Coming into this, I would say I was at a point in my life that I didn't have super high self-esteem. I didn't know where I wanted to be, what I wanted to be doing. I started I started my own company because I didn't want to go work for... I didn't want to go work in an office. I didn't want a commercial construction job. So it was like, I could do this and kind of get by. And I didn't have grand plans for it. Um, but the more that I did this, um, and then the more that I put myself out there... And and putting yourself out there on the internet is one thing because you're going to have this fan base that kind of patronizes you. And this isn't um, to speak down on people who always support me, but I feel like a lot of times it's just people blowing smoke up your ass. And to to let that get you up on your high horse is one thing. But what really changed it for me is going and walking other people's jobs where you go onto a job and it's a $6 million build. It's an $8 million build. You know, this took two, three years and looking at the, the level of execution and the standard there and seeing what our work looks like compared to that was for me, because I I never thought I'm not on that level, right? I can't do what those guys are doing. I don't have the budget for it. And maybe I don't, but like at the scale that I, I choose to be, I do have the budget to do that. And our level of execution, um, I'd put up against any of these people running these big ticket jobs because it's so easy for me to control that on the scale that we do. And really walking jobs and seeing what other people are getting away with, what their customers are happy with, what their standard is what their definition of quality is and then seeing what I'm doing gave me a huge amount of confidence to walk into customers homes or hey we're we're looking it's between you and so and so who's been in business for 35 years and I know their work but I've walked one of their jobs and now I can say hey you know what they're a great option um price point maybe can 
comparable. Maybe we're a little bit more, but I've seen their work in person. And what we do is completely different than what they do. Um, And that for me was really, I think, what kind of lit the fire under me to say, hey, what I'm putting out is truly different. And that's not to be arrogant. That's not to say that nobody else can do what we're doing. I just think that I positioned myself in this little niche with an ability to manage and self-perform so many things that when you get to a bigger scale, it's very difficult or impossible to hit our level of communication and execution just because there's so many hands involved. Yeah, um, and I would I, I would agree to that. I mean, when you think level of communication execution, it is tough because even on an expensive home, it still comes down to how good your trim guy, how good your painter, right? How good is your tile guy? And if Tyler, you're executing at the same level or better than these guys, it doesn't matter the value of the home. And but but I think the important thing is here when you start speaking about confidence, yes, there's value to Tyler going and walking these projects to really compare, right? Almost like you're sizing someone up in basketball or football or something. I mean you know, hey, I, I can play at this level or I can compete at this level. And by seeing that, there's going to be confidence as you're now working on your business development strategies with your client. But, you know, the, the, the other point I want to make is that when I started my career out of college, you know, I worked for a semi, and it's a production builder. I mean, they, they, they did nicer production, but their level of quality, what they asked of us was really high for a production company, right? And and I feel that set the tone that you can still take that level of detail or eye or execution to the higher homes and make sure you're demanding that. And so essentially that's what you've done is say, hey, I still have my niche here. I still have my market, but I can still deliver a high quality project. It doesn't have to be the client spending $8 million. No. And I I understand. I also have the conversations, right? So my customers come to me now and people have more money and they're in bigger homes and they want me to do bigger projects. And I have to have the conversation with them that I'll be able to self-perform a certain amount of these trades and I'm going to have to subcontract other trades out. And I'll manage them and manage that job to the best of my ability, but it's not going to be me doing that entire project, right? So I'm more impressed by people because it's just not what I do and it's not what I want to do, who people who can execute on a very high level while doing a large scale or a large volume or even just high dollar jobs. Because for me, my head would spin, right? (laughs) With me, with one or two jobs going on and then a few jobs lined up down the road, trying to coordinate all of that, it's a lot. There's a lot of balls in the air, right? And for, for somebody who can do that on a larger volume and communicate and keep all of those ducks in a row, for me, that's impressive. And I just, I know that I, that's not my strong suit. That's not what I want to do. That's not what makes me happy. I don't want to manage people and then, you know, stroke them the right way. And when they make a mistake, how do I groom them and talk to them in a way that I'm firm and they understand my standard, but I also, I'm not that much of a dick that they still want to work for me. And I'm like, ah, it's just easier for me to do the work, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's tough to manage all those personalities and people who do that well, for me, that's a talent. That's something that I find incredible and amazing. And I understand that that's not, that's not me. That's not what I'm good at. So I'm not going to try and take that route and grow to that route where I think that I would be doing a disservice to me, my family and my customers. 
Now we're super excited. Welcome one of our new sponsors to the podcast, Pella Windows. And this is even more exciting because we use Pella in so many of our projects, nearly all of them. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relationships with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So, For anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. And now let's get back into the episode. Managing people is definitely a challenge, especially as you think employees, right? Employees can be a challenge to manage not only them, but then, but also, you know, all the subcontractors. But, you know, you mentioned that, you know, any successful company, Tyler, they're going to understand their strengths, right? They're going to understand what they're good at, you know, and they really have to strive to make sure that everything fits that channel. So going back to the schedule, this is something that I'm super curious about because you're similar to Kyle with our buildings where you're scheduled out a year in advance and you have your clientele, yourself performing, right? So how do you manage that schedule part? Because if you have the next year planned out, and let's say it's six jobs for easy math, math every two months, and you have a project that either speeds up or takes a little bit longer. They you know, never this, speed up. What, I know, they never, they speed, never speed up. up. <laughs> I mean, it's just the reality. We know they're not speeding up. And so trying to get materials, supplies, labor that always takes longer. You think it's going to take eight hours, take 16. I mean, this is par for the course for anyone that's even done work on their house. They know how long it takes. So how do you manage that aspect, even the filling the pipeline to say, hey, client X, yeah, I could do your job, but it's going to be 14 months from now? Um, it's it's just as anything else that I do, I have that conversation with them. Um, my schedule is very fluid. I try to work one, one and a half, two jobs at a time where I'm going from one to the other. I really... it's. As I'm sure you know, it's very difficult to execute at a high level when you have multiple things going Mm -hmm. on and when you're spread across the plate. So for me to be able to do what I do, I need to plant myself somewhere. Um, I need to manage that job. I need to have my tool belt on and I can can do some other things, but I really need to stay there. So my conversation with the customers, it goes back to why are you hiring us? Are you hiring us because I'm going to turn your job around in three months? then don't you I'm setting myself up for failure. You're going to hate me. You're going to hate the experience. You're going to be so frustrated because it got bumped and it got bumped and we didn't start when we said we were going to and then the job took longer than anticipated because that's just the structure of my business. So if I'm going to sell somebody that yeah, we're going to turn your job, we'll be done within the year. You know, we'll start at the 10-month mark and we'll be done I'm shooting myself in the foot before I start that project. So I have that conversation with customers. These are the jobs that are ahead of you. If you sign up, you put a deposit 
for this job to start working on on the design in six months from now, and this is our targeted start date, you'll be next in line. If I have a customer who comes to me before you, before I have a deposit in hand and set and wants to sign up for me, they're next in that spot. So if you're serious about doing the work, you have to give me a deposit. We have to get on your schedule. And that's not, I'm not using that money. That's just like, that's incentive and motivation for me to put the effort into that customer and for that customer to kind of marry us at that point. It, everyone has skin of the game, um, <clears throat> but it's basically, these are the jobs that are ahead of you. I don't necessarily know what's going to go on with them. I don't have manpower to throw at jobs when things go wrong. So we're not necessarily picking up on the schedule end, but you're not hiring me to be able to turn this job around quickly. Once I start your job, I'm on your job. Um, so contractually, when you start, when you sign a work contract, you need a proposed start date, right? So I have a, a basically a preliminary contract to sign up for the job, and then we're signing that final work contract closer to prior to commencement of the work. So when I have a very realistic start date, I can then sign a work contract with them as to when that's going to be and take that bigger deposit at that point. But I, again, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot. So I just tell customers understand that it's a fluid schedule. I just had a customer who I probably spent nine months at their house over the course of the past two years. And they just want me there to do the rest of the house. And it's not fair to my other customers who want us there. So they wanted um, like a screened in porch addition put off the back of their house. And it's not really up our alley, but she's very particular. She loves working with us. She's not the easiest customer, but she she <laughs> wants us to do the work, right? She knows what she wants. And I had the conversation with her. I don't know when I can get to you. I've spent nine months at your house. It's time for me to get to other customers. It would be a minimum a year. And she didn't want to hear that. So she said, I think what makes the most sense is for us to find somebody else, start getting estimates, and then we'll wait for you to do the interior work when it's more up your alley anyway. And I said, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Two weeks later, I hear back from her. So when do you think you could do the screened in porch? <laughs> and it's, I, and that's the same thing where, you know, you even talk about confidence and I'm obviously doing something that these people want me. And this, th I haven't given her a price for the job. You know, I've worked for them before and I see their experience and I see how happy they are and what we're doing. And I hear horror stories and that for me gives me more confidence to continue to run things the way I am, to be able to raise my prices, to be able to command a premium because I've given somebody the news that they didn't want to hear. I told them, find somebody else. They were good with that. And then they still want to come back to me and they still want to wait outside of when they wanted to do this. So at that point, it's like, I don't know. Can I just call my price? Like, I'm not going to rip people off, but if you're willing to wait for me, that long it's not what you want it's not even the job that's right up a rally then I, I've, i'm doing something right in the way that i'm structuring myself yeah you are because there's value in the word no and for you to be able to have that confidence and at least set that clear expectation because this is this is our life this is our reality to be successful in our business which is really difficult is to set clear and finite expectations with the client and yes we're going to miss things especially at pre-construction of the sales meeting and even during construction, but the more that we can hit on the expectation side, right, the more happy the client will be. And, you know, so, so I have two questions along that side. When you had mentioned that you have this pipeline and you alluded to this, so 
if if I'm hiring you, Tyler, and I'm going to be eight months out, and I know that we have a projected start date, you know, that's going to go into February of next year. Okay, so are, am I paying you a deposit to hold my place in line? And in addition to that, how often are you updating me over eight months, right, till February to say, hey, we're on track, we're on track, or maybe March, maybe April? Um, so the deposit typically is going to be that whole pre-construction. More so developing, yeah, developing Mm -hmm. a budget for them, starting with design and then securing that spot in the schedule where it's like, hey, here's, here's where you are. Um, it's the same thing as before. That's, that's a tough sell for a customer you've never worked for before, right? When you have a customer and I tell you, I don't know when I'm going to be able to start. Um, I don't really know how much your job's going to cost. I need a design in place. Oh yeah, and I need you to pay me money and you've never worked for me before. <laughs> right? That that's yeah. a tough sell and initially you don't have the confidence to do that or to say that. But uh, I've gotten to the point where I'm going to do that. And if somebody says no, then okay, but if somebody says yes, then like yeah, they really want me. And then that that essentially it's like yeah, this is going to work out. They understand what we do. They've spoken to past customers. Um I will be able they're going they're going to be a, a good customer at that point and then we have that projected start date um we don't work up the work contract until design is finalized till we're closer to starting that job we have that budget but what we try and do is the same thing as you when we're working through that budget um we have I give them an entire spreadsheet of costs because I don't want anything to be hidden and it, a lot of my jobs aren't cost plus but I still I want them to see everything so that when they see their countertop budget and they want to choose something that's more expensive, they understand how that impacts the budget, right? So then when the job is 10% over what they thought, it's not necessarily on me. It's that point. It's like, hey, this is what I have budgeted for your countertops. If you make that selection, that's fine, but it's going to be this much more. Then the the ball's in their court and they're spending the money. I'm not making them spend that money. Um, so that's helpful for me. And then as far as kind of keeping up with things, a lot of my customers do follow me on social media, um, whether it's Facebook, Instagram. So they kind of have an idea of how my jobs are progressing and where I am. And my social media is real time. Um, I do post some old jobs every now and then if there's nothing too interesting going on. Um, but then they just check in. It's like, I'll give you an update when I have an update. If you're curious, shoot me an email, call me. I'll give you a heads up as to where we are. Um, And for me, that's helpful as well because I'm sure, as you know, when you have a boatload of work on your plate and you can't get to it, it's just stress. Mm -hmm. It's, It's on your shoulders. It's on your plate all day long. You're stressed out about it. So for me, it's so much easier just to say, hey, listen... I'm hung up four weeks on this job right now. And like that's best case scenario. And I'm truly sorry about this, but you'll see when we get to your job, if I told you it's going to take 12 weeks and it takes 15, I'm not charging you more. It's going to take 15. I'm not going to rush to get out of your your house to get to the next customer. So then once I get in, I work for them and they understand that that, that timeline is more so that for them and I'm not using that timeline to shape our level of work because if something takes a week longer than possible and I didn't account for it on my end, I'm not the type where I'm going to say, 
uh, you know what? Let's just wrap this up. It's good enough. We'll move on to the next one. We didn't really budget two weeks for this. It was more of like a five-day thing. So customers see that things do take longer. When we run into issues, I'm going to make it right. And then they understand why you have a, a, a backlog of work. And if a job goes two weeks late and then one goes four weeks late, why things get bumped. But again, they understand that hiring me. They understand that I'm not throwing manpower at jobs. So that's something that they're signing up for beforehand. And I understand that. I mean, just the level of execution and the level of, we'll call it honesty, if you will, but where you're honoring your pricing, even if it takes a little bit longer, because you're going to execute the level you want to for that reputation. But where this is incredibly complex, Tyler, which I'm sure you're dealing with is remodels in general are very open-ended. You know, you can give a budget, you can give a price, a lot of unknowns, things are different when you open up walls as you start working you know, behind the scenes. But in addition to that, here we are, COVID, inflation, material sp- spikes, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that none of us have dealt with in our career in this industry. And so for you having priced up in eight months ago, and now it comes time to go, you have a pre-construction agreement. How are you handling that? Because I, I can assure you some of these things are not priced what they were eight months ago when it's time to start. Correct. Um, so again, what you had mentioned about communication and expectations, that's where this comes in and is very, very important. Um, if that's a concern to somebody and they say, hey, you know what? Pricing is going up right now. In nine months, this job may be 30% more. Then I think that they should go find somebody who can get this job done sooner than that for them, right? So if I say, hey, we'll do our best or if it go. I'm just setting myself up for my customers to be disappointed and to put more pressure on myself. So that doesn't make sense. Um, The other thing I do is when I go to sign up for these work contracts, I write a very comprehensive scope of work. And that's, it's work for me. It's, it's, it takes a fair amount of time, but on the scale of projects that I do, it's, it's very doable. So if I do price something and I have a, a very comprehensive scope of work for that customer to see where all of my thoughts are, how I expect things to be, what I'm accounting for, specifically what I'm not accounting for, and then they see the spreadsheet of costs. If I get into this job and things are different than the scope of work, I don't feel badly charging them a change order. You know, I'm going to have the the conversation with them, what we anticipated, what we thought, and where it is now, but that's all in my scope of work. And if I miss something or it was a, a... you know, a short site on my part or my behalf, then I cover that cost. But if it's something, and it, again, it's always case by case because it's it's the whole honesty thing. If something takes a shorter amount of time and then something takes a longer amount of time, I'm not going to pocket the extra money from it being shorter and then slap them with the change order on the back end to kind of double dip into that. I know where I should be, where my profit should be because it's all so small and it's so transparent that I'll oftentimes say, hey, listen, we ran into this on this job. Um, I didn't anticipate this, but instead of me charging you 3500 bucks right now for that change order, let's see where this job ends up. If I still get out of here on time, Let's just say it's a wash. You know, if I run into something down the road, we'll figure it out and sort it out at that point. But I'm I'm not going to just say, hey, let's let's thank you. I'm not just going to say, hey, here's a change order because this is completely different than the scope of work that I had anticipated. But 
having that very comprehensive scope, it's it's somebody standing behind me saying, hey, this is what we thought. This is what it is. And the customer can actually see that. It's interesting. I mean, you can't have it both ways, essentially. You know, even when you're talking about pricing, you may have a client that, yeah, they, they want you to hold their price. But at the same time, if it goes down in eight months, they want that lower price, but they don't want to pay the increase. I mean, I understand that from the client perspective. But then from your side, from a management side, you're going to have wins and losses as, you know, each scope is performed. And so you're just going to be transparent with the client, maybe not to a dollar amount, but just say, hey, we have this, but we're going to monitor these other lines as we get forward. And, you know, that communication is really key with the client. And I can see why, uh, you know, they have that vote of confidence bringing you on, Tyler. So do you have employees? Uh, I typically have one at any given time. So, I, so when you I say one not, at any, <laughs> when you I say try one not at any to have time, more than, <laughs> is there like high turnover or is it like 1099 stuff? How does that work? No. So, I mean, I have my subs and then I like to try and keep one person on full time, but it's like, I don't last normal than usually a year, year and a half. Like I've had people work for me for three years. It's really tough. Um, in my position, I'm on the job every day. Mm-hmm. So I can't think of anyone the closest thing would be my wife because my kids sure as hell not, but there's nobody that I want to spend 10 hours a day with every single day. Right? So if I'm, I'm, it's me on the job. I'm not, I'm not running jobs. I'm not running around. I'm going to see you for an hour a day, right? You're not a super, I'm going to be working beside you for eight, 10 hours. And I don't have a (laughs) super high tolerance for BS. I, I'm not the most patient person in the world. I would imagine that I'm not the easiest person to work for. So I've I've accepted that I'm going to have people come through, spend their time, but it's a lot of it. It's going to be harder than they anticipate, and the, the standard there. And it's not. I'm not. I'm not ragging on people, but it's gonna it's gonna be frustrating when you walk in and you have to be pretty well versed in multiple trades dealing with the customers um, and then executing the way that I want to and working long hours and everything else and realistically not making a ton of money. It's our industry and the way that I'm set up, right? It's, it's very difficult to pay somebody a hundred grand a year Mm -hmm. um, when you're this small, it's difficult to pay somebody 80 grand a year when you're this small. If I have somebody that I want to pay a hundred grand a year and they make me more money than that, it's that's fine. But most of the people who come in want to learn and they want to start, they have to start somewhere and it's not, it's not what it looks like on Instagram. It's not the pretty pictures, especially the houses that we work in. It's all old houses. It's tight. It's a pain in the butt. It's me telling that you need to clean up things more. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, and there's, there's rules and there's standards and it's not the easiest thing. I, I can't imagine it would, it would, I wouldn't want to work for me. I'll yeah, be honest. But, but here's the reality, Tyler. I mean, even though you're super particular and you're very good at execution and you have this high level. So yeah, it would be difficult for someone to come in and execute at the same level, take the same ownership that you do, Tyler. That goes without saying, but it, the, the reality is people don't understand enough in our industry how difficult it is. Construction is an extremely difficult uh, industry. It's just hard in every one. It's funny because when I hired Paul, who you know, Paul Lundgren, who's AFT2, yeah. he came in. And I told him, I said, look, Paul, things look great on Instagram. You see these pretty pictures. And even though I'm not self-performing like Tyler, 
there there's a high level of understanding and execution and management, managing people, managing clients, right? These are these are clients spending five, six, ten million dollars on their home that expect certain levels, right? And it was funny because even, you know, his first year, he's like, it's like I'm drinking out of a fire hose. Like this is no yeah. joke. What you know, I'm used to cabinetry and trim, but now I'm responsible for everybody and this communication. There's there's so much more to this that people realize and even our clients understand what Tyler's doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I I would love to have somebody come on where I can sit there and everything that they do is the way that we need it to be done and I don't have to make them redo stuff. Um and I don't have to I don't have to have the conversation where like listen, I really appreciate the effort. This is good, but we kind of need this to be this way and this is why. Um, it, it, it's difficult to have that conversation day in and day out, um, because of how I want things to line up and how I'm, I'm getting paid for that, right? Like that's what my customers signed up for. Um, so it's gotta be difficult for somebody to come in and, you know, they see the finished photos and they see, Hey, it was a really great experience with my customers or I have the best customers in the world. But then they don't realize that you're dealing with an electrician that made a mess that didn't, you know, do what you needed to do or you're at the end of the job and the plumber had this mistake or the customer didn't like the way that the HVAC people did this. It's just headaches all day long. And you're dealing with managing people, you're managing your customers, you're managing your vendors. I'm not in the best mood every day. Like the 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 happiest I am on a job is when I'm on a job by myself and I have headphones on and I'm just working. And it, it it's not that for the sole reason that I have nothing else to take care of but the task at hand directly in front of me. I get frustrated and I get flustered when something's going wrong. There's a material delay. The subcontractor just bumped for the next day when I just confirmed it with the customer. And then my employee's asking me what they can do. And then I'm just like, everyone leave you know, I'll, I'll get it done by myself. Um, but day to day, it's, it's a tough industry. It's not fun. It's not what it looks like on Instagram. And if you are not getting compensated properly, um, it's not going to be the easiest thing to live with. Yeah. It's, it's not, it really, it isn't worth it if you're not compensated for what we do, you know? So how do you find personal time, Tyler? I mean, being that you're self-performing and you have this tight schedule, how often do you travel with the family, you know, with your wife and kids? So, um, the past six months or so, I've really been trying to focus on that. And I found that the smaller I remain, the more time I have. And that's because when I have more stuff going on, if I do go away, uh, I need to be working when I go away. If it's the weekend and I have people working, then I need to be working as well. So the the smaller volume of work that I do, the more manageable the projects, the easier it is for me to have personal time, for me not to have to work after work because I don't have to worry about having two weeks worth of work for this person and getting this sub from this job to that job. So I've really been focusing a lot lately um, on refining what I'm doing, um, really finding the size projects that maximize the amount of money I make, um, that it, it is manageable for me to have people there and not be on the job. 
And that's really opened up some, some liberty and some freedom for me to be able to spend some time. The less headaches that I have, the better I'm. And you can ask my wife, I, I'm not the type when there's an issue to say, Oh, I'm going to hang my tool belt up and I'll deal with this tomorrow. If there's an issue or, um, the customer's not happy, that just eats at me nonstop. And it's like, I don't want to leave the job. I want to get back to work and fix it. So the, the more that I can kind of assuage those issues and, um, minimize the, how many issues I'm having, the more manageable my personal life is, uh, the more free time that I have. So I really, my decisions to remain small and run a really tight, um, outfit is it's as much personal as it is on a business level. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I, you know, in closing here, I, I think what's amazing, Tyler, is you're also as busy as you are, which astounds me how you keep track of everything, being that you're self-performing and manage this and still have time for the family. But in addition, you also run your social media. You also are part of the Modern Craftsman podcast. So I know it's a kind of a two-part question, but what is the benefit of the Modern Craftsman podcast? Have you seen that affect just you in general, your connections, your network, and even business development as well as your Instagram? Um, obviously getting on and, and speaking with different people every week kind of, um, opens up your eyes to what other people have going on. A lot of times for me, perspective is huge, right? So you're going through life and you're looking at everything through your own eyes and what you're experiencing and the problems that you have and being able to get a glimpse into what other people's problems are and what other people's issues are and what they're struggling with. It, it oftentimes that perspective enlightens me a lot. It, it makes me appreciate what I have, what I don't have, how things are structured and that it could be better. It could be worse. Right. So I, I, um, I have an issue at work and it's, one of these doors came in on this cabinet and it, it it's all banged up and I need to send it back and it needs to get refinished. And that's, that's hanging me up for the day, right? I'm, I'm bummed about that. And it's one more thing to add to my list. And then I hop on a podcast with John and Nick and Nick has like something blow off a roof and hit a utility <laughs> pole and light the utility pole on fire. And I'm like, all right, the door doesn't look so bad, right? Like I can live with that. Um, so that, that's one aspect of it selfishly looking inward, but then the, the other thing, um, and I'm, I'm not one that's going to sit here and take compliments well, or I don't like when I always feel like people are patronizing me or, Hey, I love what you do or you, the work that you put out. And it's the same thing with the podcast. When people send me a super long DM telling me how helpful it is, I get real awkward and I don't really I don't, I'm, I probably don't seem as gracious as I should be, but that's really important for me is the impact that we have on a larger level. You lose sight of that a lot, right? You're going through the motions and you don't want to record a podcast today. And then you hear from five, six people on a Monday morning as to how it changed their work week or it helped them sort out some issues they were having with a customer or at home. And that's a lot of the motivation to keep doing it. Um, it's not financial impact or anything like that. It, it comes down to bettering yourself as a person. Yeah, that's great perspective. That's a great way to close this, Tyler. So for for those listening, I mean, what do you have that's upcoming and exciting? Um, I don't even want to think about it. So honestly, one of my things, 
on my list of stuff to do today. I didn't go to the job today because I have painters on the job. I was like, I'm going to go through my emails with all my return customers and look at what I have on my plate just so I can tell like new people basically no. Um, so it's, it's the standard projects. It's some kitchens, it's some bathrooms. I have a, a return customer who just bought a new house and she wants to do a bunch of renovations to it. Some that are pretty easy for me to sup out, um, some cabinetry and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think that my projects are particularly, um, that I, I don't, we don't do anything that's super sexy. I don't think, I think that I like to, we do a lot of more traditional architecture and a lot of, we kind of take a lot of the older homes around here and clean them up more of a transitional look, but a lot of the jobs coming up are the normal jobs. Um, try and execute them the best that I can make sure our finish work looks tight. Um, but uh, unless I can't think of anything specifically, every job that I do, I feel like I love, I fall in love with, I love the customers, but, um, it'll be more of the same stuff that you always see. I'm not like Nick where I'm like, I'm going to be doing three passive houses and then <laughs> build a high rise. Uh, I, that kind of stuff doesn't, um, for me, the, the growth within the business is more so the evolution of my processes and systems and hopefully getting to that end goal a little bit quicker and making more money, not necessarily moving up the ladder as far as the size of jobs and the financial dollar behind the jobs. You know, but the, the insight you shared, Tyler, is really success comes in so many different forms and what is the definition of success and it's different for everybody, right? For you, successful is as you refine those systems, you have a more tight knit network where you have that flexibility of better style of life and more time with their family or whatever to disengage, you know, and not have the stress and anxiety and to others that may be being bigger and growing larger with more complex projects. And that, you know, everyone has to understand that. And you've done a great job communicating, understanding your strengths, your weaknesses, and what makes you tick. And that's where really why you could stand here today with the confidence you do. So for those listening, you know, to follow along and, and learn more about you, where could they find you? Um, website, trghomeconcepts.com. I don't think that gets updated that much. Um, Instagram, I'm, I'm pretty active on. It's just at trghomeconcepts. You can check us out, the Modern Craftsman podcast, um, on that every week with Nick and John. Um, I would say that's about it. I don't think I have too much going on. I mean, I probably have too much going on for one person. Yeah, like you said, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Honestly, what makes me tick and gets me by, um, I like to I like to do jobs the right way. I like my customers to be happy. I like to please people. And I do want to simplify my life some. I want to have some free time. I want to have some hobbies. I want to be able to like, watch my daughters grow up. And for me, it's it's not about landing the next big job or working 100 hours a week as much as kind of refining what I'm doing and ensuring that I'm, you know, I'm being a good husband, I'm being a good father, I'm being a good business owner, I'm treating my friends the right way, my customers the right way, and being able to hit all of those things without being spread too thin. So that's that's uh, Those are the goals for me. We'll see what happens. Well, that's a great way to leave us today, Tyler. So thank you for making time in your busy schedule for us today. Yeah, man. Thank you. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, 
They're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.